as an investor, do you want to hunt for the multi-baggers, also known as the 10x or even the 100x? How do you get a close to 100% chance of making money in the stock market? Today, we'll hear from an investor whose privately managed public equities fund has outperformed the S&P 500 every year since it started in 2017. We talk about the criteria and the frameworks to look for winners in our portfolio. And we'll learn from examples as we talk about companies like Meta, Tesla, ICE, and many more, so that you can come up with your own investment thesis. We talk about capital allocation, upcoming opportunities, and how to handle investment mistakes. Do note that this content is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not serve as any form of advice or recommendation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chill with TFC episode. In this series, we talk to interesting people with relevant experience and insights to help us learn from their perspectives so that we can create the life we love and manage our finances as well. It's not the first time my guest is on this show. You can search or check out Chills31 and the topic was about the Chinese market. We shared some valuable insights and we want to have him back. I mean, how can we not, especially when he's written a book called Vision Investing, How We Beat Wall Street and You Can Too. The idea is that any retail investor can also beat the market and we want to learn the strategies behind that. Let's welcome founder and chief investment officer of Vision Capital, Eugene Ng. How is fun investing different from personal investing and how are these two forms of investing different from, like you said, you're investing in startups right now? Yeah, so startup investing, fun investing, personal investing, what's the difference? Correct. I mean, for me, it's really all personal investing because I mean, investing largely as, as an individual investor on my own capacity. But if I like to differentiate it between public and private, right? So in, in public, all companies are available to you for your selection. The only difference is the price. And, and Mr. Market makes the price. It could be higher one day, could be lower the other day. In private, it's extremely different. You have to like the company, you have to like the startup. But the startup has also to like you back and accordingly has to be coming out and raising capital at which the time you have to have capital. So I think that's a very vast difference between the private and the startup space. So in the startups, your deal flow matters, who you are matters, whether the, the, the founder wants you to be on the cap table, investing in, in them for the specific round, versus if you were to be investing on the public markets. If you're investing on the public markets, all you need to do nowadays, just open up your iPhone, you know, pick a stock ticker, buy and sell, put in the amounts, and that's really it. There's no emotions. You don't have to react with anyone. But on the, on the private side, it's extremely different. Mm, just so we understand clearly, public equities refer to stocks that are bought and sold on the public market. Well, that would be a, a stock exchange. So you see all the Apple, all the, all the Teslas and all these public companies. Whereas private equity is more of really startup, angel investing and different people come to you to raise their funds for their own startups, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, today, we're more focused on the public equities because well, well you, you manage a fund but most of our listeners are going to be retail investors. So let's see what we can learn from your experience in managing a fund, right? And how our listeners can take that away and apply it to themselves. So tell us a bit more about your fund and your investing strategies. So I think we really got to start off with the mission of the fund. So the mission of the fund really is to invest in companies and they reflect our best vision for our future that's changing and shaping the world for the better. So I think in, in public investing, right, we really got to think about it very differently is that we have very, very long-term focused investors and the reason why we are long-term focused investors is if you're investing in any company on any given day, right, you have probably a 51% chance of making money. But if you're putting that out longer term, say out to 10 years, that percentage probably of making money probably goes up to about 60 or 70%. Now, if you extend that up to about 20 years, you have probably about 90 to 100% chance of not losing money, of making money. That's why we're very, very long-term focused investors. And in the entire public market space of about 25,000 companies, there was a study that was being done. Only about 4% of the companies accounted for 100% of the returns. And even, even a smaller percentage, about 0.5% of the companies, 
accounted for about 50% of the entire market returns. Now, we are fishing in a very, very small set of the ponds because these companies really are the ones that are contributing all the returns. So we're really trying to find these winners and we expect these winners to continue to win. So we're very focused in the time, in the way of the style of, of, of the investments that we're really looking at and, and trying to drive that forward. So we, we take a very, very diversified approach um, to that. It's long only. We don't do any hedging. We don't do any short selling, no leverage or anything. It's just simple, simple buy and hold uh, from that from the aspect. Okay. So uh, there are a few things you can talk about. For example, long-term means different things to different people. But in your case, you will be referring to? I say long-term means basically we buy and we hope to never sell. Oh, okay, that's, that's long term, as long term as it is. As but you're also saying it. that you know, 20 to 30 years, the and, percentage and, of uh, you know, me making a, a return, a positive return on the market is 90 to 100%, you're saying? Yes, that is correct. Okay. So I think the way to think about it is that in terms of long terms, right, we're thinking, thinking about in years and also in decades. Mm. And the way when you're buying a company, the best math or the best returns around this is this, right? The maximum downside that you can lose on any given stock is 100%. Buy something, the thing, the thing goes to zero. Now, the best thing is that the upside is literally unlimited, right? It's extremely asymmetric. So what we have here is that we're really trying to find and hunt for multi-baggers, companies that really go up, you know, 5, 10, 15, 50, 100x in, in returns. 100x, that's what we're all yes. excited about. Yes, it's okay, but, but then you mentioned that you invest over the long term and therefore increases to 90 to 100%. Is that from personal experience or is that statistics? It's, where, it's, where did that it's, come from? It's a statistics. Mm. So it was actually done over a, a study that we, that we had was over 120 years of data. It was done over rolling periods. So for every single monthly rolling period or yearly period of even you know 20 years of rolling period, that study basically said that if you had invested in the S&P 500 and you held it for 20 years rolling periods, for example, there will never be a period where you lost money. Okay, snapshot so that, 20 years, snapshot. you'll definitely exactly. make money. I think it's very okay. important because you know Warren Buffett and a lot of great investors tell us that you should be investing for the long term. But they never really tell you why you need to be investing for the long term. And that's I think that was a very simple statistic when I wanted to, to formulate my entire uh, investment strategy. That was one particular statistic that really mentioned I need to be investing for the long term. So when, I, when I'm investing that way, the odds of success are literally in my favor. I'm literally playing a game where I have a very high chance of winning already in the first place than to be playing a game where it's 50-50. So I like to play games effectively where the probabilities are in really in my favor. And now buying stocks, right? Buying stocks is the good thing is I have asymmetric upside. So then I have the asymmetric upside as well. So I, I'm, I basically have having bets that basically will make more, far more than I lose. Okay, 100x. Let's talk about 100x. What's your criteria? Okay, is it different from analyzing a supposed 100x company versus, I mean, you have 80 companies, right? Not all of them are going to be 100x, right? Yes. So how do you assess the valuations of the company? How do you pick what to invest in? Correct. I think the, mis the list of 100 baggers really is it's something that start you need to start off right from the beginning, right? If you have a very big company already, for it to go 100x, it's going to be extremely unlikely. Right. So typically, the 100 baggers, they typically tend to start quite small. But where you see some of the typical traits is this. They're growing rapidly. Uh, they're, they're very strong track record. They're typically disruptors or, you know, or could be a top dog in a, in a specific industry, disrupting a very big space. Next, the market. The market tends to be very big. It means they could be addressing a very, very big market or they could be expanding to very, very big markets. So, so I think that's extremely important. If you're competing, for example, if you're a restaurant only competing in a specific neighborhood, you'll never become a 100x because unless you are expanding to a restaurant train that goes in a specific region across the country, then across the world, then you can get to a 100x. But if you have a very niche specific restaurant, you'll never get there. So I'm talking about businesses that really are addressing a very, very big market from this standpoint. Next, the, the thing is that the unit economics of the business really got to matter. It matters in a sense that wherever you're generating revenues, you're making enough profits. And at the same time, when you reinvest these profits, you're making back the same kind of returns. So from a business perspective, it's growing faster and growing better, especially when, it, when, it, when it's growing. And unit economics referring to? Unit economics means basically, right? If I'm making a dollar in revenues, I'm selling, which is revenues is selling price times the, you know, the goods and products that, you, that you're selling, right? The profits that you're making there has to be profits. If you're making losses for every single dollar of, of, of revenues that you're making or sales that you're making, that's not, that's not going to be an investable business, right? Because very soon, we're going to run off of cash. So I think we really want to be finding companies that are businesses that have to be almost, basically they're profitable from day one, basically from that perspective. If they're reinvesting, it's a, it's a totally different thing, right? But I think they have to be, the unit economics really have to be really fundamentally, I would say, right in, in that standpoint. 
And also, I like companies that are also founder-led, founder-owned, with very high insider ownership, um, you know, very strong cultures. You find this, because this is, ultimately, businesses are run by people. And when businesses are run by people, people matter. The leadership matter, the management matter, the type of culture matters. Because this tends to be very long-dated, very duration type of business, and we want them to this. So, 100 baggers, typically, you know, they last anywhere from 10, they, they take anywhere from 10, 20 to 30 years. So you want companies that are truly, I would say, durable from the standpoint. Okay, so founder-led, unique economics, top dog or a disruptor, any other criteria? Large market. It's extremely okay, Total crucial. addressable market. Exactly. Market, large That's enough. extremely important. Okay. okay. Is there a framework that a retail investor can take away from all this? I think the way when you look at any company when you're investing, always think about how big it can become, right? First think about where it is right now. Is, is it a good business that you want to own? Right. Don't think about you know where all the, the the media tells you about you know you should be buying this company or not. But really think about look at the business. Is this a, a business that you would want to run or own in real life? Right. If that is, now like let's look at it. Is it growing? Is it growing fast enough? Is it growing fast enough to be where it is? If it can become bigger and far more bigger than what it is, typically that would give you a, a very very long run runway. And I think that's really always a, a very good starting point to be thinking about. So I give you an example, right? You look at some of the, the PNGs or some of your consumer, you know, growing companies. They're typically growing now because they're so big. They've been growing for so long. Yeah. Very, very established, right? Blue chip companies. They're probably growing at like almost low single digit kind of growth, right? To try to squeeze them out to grow even faster, it's going to be extremely difficult, right? So what happens is that also their profit margins are extremely well established, already very, very high, and you can't increase them further. So what happens is that if the revenues grow five, you know, single low single digits, your earnings and if your profit margin stays stagnant or unchanged, your earnings are going to grow single, low single digits, right? And if the price multiples remain low or still going to remain low, effectively the stock is going to be returning single digit returns. And that's just one simple way to think about it. Okay. So I, I find those that are not going so fast, they're almost effectively almost out of, of, of my considerations. Okay, not financial advice, but mm. I'm guessing that PNG is probably not in your <laughs> portfolio of 80 companies, right? <laughs> yes, it is not. Okay, how about, because we understand what well, we want, want the top dogs, we want the profit margins to be growing, revenue to be growing, customer base to be growing, but uh, are there specific ratios we should be looking at? Let, let's drill down into the specifics of it yeah. so that we know what to look out for. Right. Okay. I think it really starts at the business right at the top, right? So when you look at revenues, right? Revenues is really made up of, sell, of selling price times the specific you quantities, right? Brace yourself, accounting 101. <laughs> yes, you need one, to school. accounting 101, <laughs> right? right? I think that's accounting. really how to think about a business. <laughs> right. I think the thing about selling price is firstly, do they, does the company have pricing power? Can they keep increasing pricing over time, right? Look at Netflix. Every month or every increased. other quarter, it keeps increasing prices, <laughs> right? Right, right? And uh, our prices were like, what? It was about 15 to $20 versus our cable, which is about paying about $50. I think Netflix has a long way, a long journey of increasing prices. As long it is, you can keep delivering, you know, content value for all of us. We, we are delighted by what we are watching. I think they can continue to raise prices, right? Or even Spotify, for example, it's the same. It's, it's very similar. Next, you got to think about unit. Can they buy more, right? That, that's also another aspect of it. Now, that goes down next to what we think about gross profits. Gross profits is basically revenues after acquiring, you know, of the cost of, of making that product and also distributing it. So gross profit margins are extremely important because the way, if you think about it, if a company has very high gross profit margins, it's typically a signal that they have some sort of competitive advantage or some sort of moat or some sort of pricing power to be able to, to make that. Right? So I'll give you an example. You make $100, if your gross profit margin, say for example, is $80, which means the cost of goods of delivering that cost you $20 and that's $80, it's your gross profit, mm. right? I think now you try to break it down back from gross profit down to what we call operating income, you have to go through a couple of items and uh, there's also a couple of items. The ones I think about generally are sales as GNA, or because sales general and admin expenses. So typically any sales admin expenses that we have, R&D expenses, that's extremely key. R&D, and I think the other, the other one would be, I think, I think that that's probably, that's, that's, that's another one more. So I'll try to- th- I try refer to, to your book? <laughs> yeah. So I try, to, I try to think about it from, from those three, little, three, three aspects about it. And the mm. way to think about it really is in terms of operating income margins, they really have been rising over time. So as the company scales, we want really, you know, I think we're on operating leverage. So basically the way to think about it, the more revenues grow, the profit margins really go up. Mm. And if the profit margins grow up, it's a beautiful thing. So for example, right, if I have the top line of a revenue growing at 20%, and if the profit margins keep rising, which means, let's say for example, it grows from, let's say $100 right now, right? The operating income is 20, 20%. So you make $20 on that. But if a company managed to raise 
the operating income margin from 20% to 40%. Literally what it means is on the same $100, they will have doubled their earnings. Now, if the company even grows faster than the top line, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So the way I really think about it is, the, I want the companies to be growing really quickly. I want the companies to be improving their profitability. I think that really hits really the, the sweet spot, typically, in terms of that, that acceleration, in terms of earnings growth. And that if the company can do that for a long time, I think that's where you really get the sweet spot of having a very, very long term, long-term returns. Mm. You generally got the expenses right. I mean, generally, and I mean, like mm. you say, R&D and then sales and marketing expenses. And tell us a bit more about the operating income margin. So operating income margin is extremely important because that is the, that is the next step to get you from gross profit to operating income margin. Mm. So I think operating income yeah, so margin... So first talk about revenue and correct. then go to, go gross, to gross profit. profit and then now you talk about operating income margin. Okay, uh, Exactly. So I think when you go to operating income margin, I think that's really the key because you're further breaking down, right? And ultimately, as a company makes from generating all their sales, what is truly the, that amount of profit that really goes in? So I think operating and income, as we said, basically, you know, you deduct after your cost of goods, you deduct all your, your GNA, your R&D, all your other depreciation and other expenses and stuff, you get to that. I think from operating income, it's also crucial you get the net income margins, which, you know, you less off all your taxes, interest taxes, and so on and so forth to get to that. Why am I going through earnings and going through this exercise, right? Is that in the very long run, you find me a company whose revenues are rising, whose earnings are rising, and whose cash flows are rising and the stock price is not rising. Almost almost for sure, everything is all going to be rising. So it's it, going to be priced in before that, right? Usually, I mean, the market... It is. So, so in the very short run, right? I think typically that goes, that goes that way. But if you're doing something for say, you know, 10, 20 years, you find a company that has rising revenues, cash flows and profits, almost certainly for sure, you have a rising stock price. The only question, obviously, how much, you know, how much is it rising, you know, by a lot or by not so much. But I think that's always the barometer because ultimately businesses are always driven by that. Of course, it's a case-by-case basis because if it's already priced in, I mean, then the question would be, am I too late? Am I missing out if I don't buy now? I mean, there's always all these things to consider. How do you understand that? That boils very interestingly going into multiples, right? So mm-hmm. some companies can be very expensive right now. So I, let, let's try to give us give some examples, right? So for example, let's look at Facebook, right? Facebook probably trades... Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's meta, say, meta now. Meta, right? <laughs> exactly, right? Meta. So meta trades, for example, let's say, you know, at 25 times PE. If the top line, for example, can grow at at 30, 30%, which is fairly reasonable, right? If you take a rule of 72, which means I know approximately about... 72 divided by 30 gets you about two and a half years, right? Mm. So about every two and a half years, double. uh, Facebook doubles, right? Mm. So in five years, Facebook doubles. So at PE right now of 25, right? In five years' time, assuming that the price stays the same, in five years' time, Facebook is going to trade at 12.5 times PE. It's it's probably not going to trade at 12.5 times PE, right? Now, the question is, will it be trading at a higher PE or lower PE, right? If you manage to accelerate that growth. Let's say, for example, you trade at 25 times PE. What effectively you have is in five years' time, you have a stock of Facebook doubling. And that's how I really think about it from earnings back to valuation multiples. So I always try to think about it very forward-looking and think about it not in current, present multiples, but think about it in really forward multiples. How big can the company grow? Is this 30% assumption that I have a reasonable assumption? To, to get towards there. Okay, since we're on Facebook, I mean, as of recording, Facebook just changed its name to Meta not too long ago. Mm. So how, how do you take into account their direction into VR, into, you know, creating this online virtual space, the Metaverse, right? I mean, it, it's harder to evaluate in that sense. I think the Metaverse is, is going to be very, very interesting. Um, what Facebook has is they, were, they are trying to establish what Apple had with the App Store and with the iPhone, right? So Facebook has always been, as an app, on, on the Android devices, on Apple's devices, it relies on the Apple App Store. Now, what Facebook is trying to do is to break away from that stranglehold of Apple and to have their own, own system. And I think that's, that acquisition of Oculus in the AR and VR space is extremely strategic in, in the very, very first place. So when you have Oculus and if everyone uses Oculus and now they have an App Store equivalent of the Oculus and if the metaverse happens in the Oculus, they then have that new stranglehold, right, of the App Store equivalent uh, which Apple has. Mm. And it's that, own walled it's garden. Own wall, it's own walled yeah. gardens, exactly. And I think that's extremely crucial. It's going to take time to be built, right? Is the Oculus the final step of where the metaverse is going to be? I'm, I'm not sure. Can it be better? I think it can be. Right? So I think it's, it's a step in the right direction. It's almost similar to how Facebook actually pivoted from desktop to mobile. I think that was a very pivotal moment when you started realizing Apple started coming on a lot of smartphones and everyone, you know, 
smartphone usage and adoption really skyrocketed and everyone had the smartphone was basically a new PC in, in the pocket, right? So I think when he pivoted that, it's almost like right now, he needed to realize that, okay, everyone's smartphone adoption is probably full and now he needed to pivot. And I think with the Oculus, it's probably the right way to be thinking around it. Mm, because you gave an example of Facebook mm. being at 25 PE. Can I say that it's, it's just harder to, well, you got to plug in assumptions when it comes to new directions or new developments, right? And you got to have your best your bad case, your you know, bull case and your base case. Mm. So am I missing anything? Like, is, it, is this the way to look at it? If I want to look at Facebook or Meta, for example, mm. and its new direction in the Metaverse. Correct. I, th- I think you brought a very good way, right? So the way when we think about investing and I think about things, I try not to think about it in really absolute things. Mm. I think try to think about it in very relative and in possibilities and and what the range of, of outcomes can be, right? So I think my base case is probably 30% because Facebook has been growing you know, earnings at, at around 30%-ish. Now, interestingly, because with the Metaverse, they're going to be investing about almost 10 billion in the next couple of years. Mm. It's going to take a very, very long time to build out, right? But I think Facebook itself, you know, they have pricing power over their existing business. I think that's key. And I think where you have right now is, is that reinvestment. And that's going to take place. But the question is, can that reinvestment happen? If they can continue to grow, you know, the existing base business at 30%, you know, Kager for the next couple of years, which they have clearly demonstrated that they can, uh, I think that's going to be an interesting angle for it. So I think the way I think about it is, uh, even if they don't grow at 20, 30%, right? They grow at 20%. If they grow faster at 40%, that's probably a good range of outcomes to be thinking around it. If they grow at 40%, you're, gonna, you're probably going to make more than a double. If they're growing at ten, if they're growing at at twenty percent, you know, I think you're probably you're gonna make under a double, and under a double less than five years, that's not too bad, right? Yeah. Okay. Coming back to the framework, so we have revenue, we have gross profit, and then operating income margin. Anything else? Just in case I missed out something. Right. I think one thing that I forgot to mention was really about cash flows, mm. right? So I think cash flows. The way you think about it, I think about it in two two matrix. One, the first one is really operating cash flows. I would say cash flows any t- taken out from a business from really running out of the entire business or from cost, expenses and really cash-based expenses. Cash flows are extremely important because if a company doesn't have enough cash flows, for example, if every dollar I need to generate in terms of sales and I need to have $2 out of, of, of my own capital out for the business, it's a very inefficient business because at some stage, you need to keep continually, continuously be raising capital, be it equity or debt and that's not going to be sustainable over the long run. And then the other one, the other matrix is, I would say is free cash flow, which is, in my opinion, a more important matrix for me. So free cash flow is basically operating cash flow, less capital expend- expenditures or CAPEX, which includes like your buying of your, of your property purchase, your you know, properties, equipment, and, and your traditional in- investment per se. So I like to think about it, free cash flow. Because free cash flows are the one that truly, I would say, the, the ones that are cash flows I can, as, as, a, as an equity holder, can be really taking. Because you really need to be reinvesting and for us, reinvesting is so important because if you don't reinvest, you don't have future growth. And that's why like, free cash flow is extremely important. Mm, can I say that it's uh, safer to look at free cash flow instead of operating cash flow because you take into account KPEX as well. You it really is. minus off all these expenses and this is how much cash flow you have to keep the company going. Correct. Mm. But interestingly, the way to think about it is if a company is near its maturity, operating cash flow and free cash flows are probably going to be very similar because your capital expenditures are probably going to be very low, right? And the company doesn't have too much reinvestment opportunities. They're probably going to be acquiring rather than reinvesting them in the business. Mm. Now, when a company is just starting out, the operating cash flows could be far higher than the free, free, you know, the, the free cash flow, right? Because they're reinvesting in, in, in rapid, very rapidly because every reinvestment, you probably generate more revenue, which makes a lot more sense. So I think you've got to be thinking about it very differently. It's, it's the entire spectrum I'm thinking about it and it tends to, I would say, converge uh, you know, as the company basically matures. Okay, so if you think about industries, uh, which stage of the company is it at and what kind of products that they have, right, for example. So if, can I say that if you are looking at investing in a relatively younger company, then you have to, well, give them some leeway on the operating cash flow versus free cash flow. Whereas Google, well, everything is code, right? <laughs> okay, not everything, but, but most of it is code and, and therefore your the operating cash flow and free cash flow will be roughly similar. That is correct. Okay, all right. Um, anything else? No, I, I think those are the ones that I really look at it from, from that. So I think as, as an investor itself, I think we really got to be just focused on the business rather than on price. I think that's always extremely important. You know, okay. prices can go up and down at any one stage, but I think I'd rather be, be business-focused investors rather than be, you know, be price-focused investors. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You mentioned you have about 80 companies in our portfolio, but I'm going to guess that most of us you know, can't manage 80 companies out here, right? Unless you do it full time. I'm not too sure about you, but different people have different investing styles. But um, how do you allocate your capital? To start off with, with the 80 companies, right? The way how I do my research typically is that I'll do a full deep dive on, on any company that, that we own. And I'll write an investment thesis that ranges anywhere from, I'll say, 40 to 100, 100 even 150 pages, depending on, on, on the complexity for each company. For each company on okay. the complexity of the company. Right. Now, when you do that kind of deep research, so it's almost like a, a thesis and slash journal or encyclopedia. So everything about it, that I need to know about a company is literally you know, available there at the click of a button, right? That helps me because it helps me to form a very strong conviction. So with that, I do it one time. And every time during quarterly earnings, I take probably half an hour to, to one hour to, you know, to kind of update it. And that's really it. So I, because you have built so much deep conviction right at the beginning and you have that you do regularly regular updates so with that actually it's not too I would say too too, too tiring or, or too much effort to be honest okay so about 80 companies and each company about half an hour for an update assuming mm. you've really done all the work back yep. then right so yep. and you do it every quarter so every quarter you spend about 40 hours mm-hmm. updating your conviction so to exactly. speak uh, exactly but in, in terms of the numbers which you all just mentioned right um, all the cash flows and all the operating income you're just updating all of it to make sure that the fundamentals still remain that is, cor- mm. that is correct mm. I think when you talk about allocation right so the, I think the allocation always follows conviction so the higher the conviction you have the higher your allocation now, but typically what I would do is I try to do a kind of a rules or rule of thirds in which my first third or which I call it my starter position, I will basically invest a specific amount for the starter position, right? It'd be at whatever price it will be. So it mm. will be at current market price. I don't use any orders. I just go in there and just buy the current market. What's the rule of thirds? So the rule of thirds is books like this. If I want to get a full size position, I don't put in my full size position right away. I try to put in my one third of my position upfront. And as the next couple of quarters, when I see the company is doing very well, not the price is doing very well, I put in my second third. The companies are doing especially well. I can put in some more. And I continue adding. So I try to put it, try to do it that way and continue to build up that position. So you don't need to actually rush in or get a fear of missing out and put all your position right away. You can actually build it over time. Because the big thing about it is if you're invested in, in Apple, right, 20 years ago, on the 20th year, Versus the 19 year versus the 18 year, it wouldn't make a difference. Or in Amazon, right? Even up to up to up to right now. So it really does not. You get the most important is to, I want you to be finding great companies and let these companies actually, you know, let them show you that they can perform, they can do well. One of my favorite phrases to think about it is this, right? To find excellence, to buy excellence, to hold excellence, to add to excellence, and to sell sell mediocrity. I think we always try to follow this halfway, right? And keep adding to them and letting them rise. That's always how, how it goes. So in my portfolio, for example, I always give that standard allocation and let them run, right? And a lot of them, when they show me that they have run, and accordingly, the stock price almost typically follows that run rate. It almost always compounds naturally on its own. Because I let my winners run and they run really high. For example, when, when, when some of the stocks basically, they go up 10, 15 times in, in, they become some of my largest positions. And they become some of my largest positions in my portfolio by their own right. And I think that's extremely important. So I kind of let them compound into some of the, the biggest positions. Let's talk about rule of thirds for a while. Let's mm. just say I have uh, 90K. So that means 30K, 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 right? Mm. Three tranches. Mm. So the, the first 30K goes in. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that uh, the second tranche goes in if the company is doing well and not necessarily the stock, stock price is doing well, right? But what's the time period between the first and the second tranche? Does it matter? I think it depends. It's not a clear-cut answer. So the way to think about it is companies report every quarter, right? The way to think about it is look, look at the next quarter earnings. Are, are they performing as per what your investment thesis is saying? Are they accelerating that growth even faster, right? I think the, that's one way to think about it. If you, if you find that they're accelerating, you know, at that position. And sometimes if market drawdowns may be in between the quarters and you still have very high conviction in the company, you can add sometimes, especially, right? So I tend to use... I tend to use, I would say, quarterly earnings as checkpoints. But sometimes, Mr. Market gives you an opportunity, right? It's only for no reason, nothing happens. And then the market falls 20%, right? Or 30%. 
And that gives you a great reason. And I would I would take the opportunity to add to that position. I, I'm getting to buy at, at even cheaper prices than I bought previously. So your second tranche might come earlier. Yeah, so it really depends on market levels, a combination mm. of, of of when the earnings comes and, and really your conviction. Yeah, something to consider apart from dollar cost averaging. Mm. I mean, as a strategy. I mean, this is closer to lump sum investing, except that you're just dividing this lump sum into three different tranches. Yep, correct. Right, you can put it that way. Okay, and you mentioned that like, allocate according to your conviction. So it's not about industry or other ways you demarcate it or carve it out, right? It's according to your conviction. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So I try to give an example, right? So if I try to invest in, for example, some of the gene editing companies, which mm-hmm. I do invest in, in some of them, some of them are still getting FDA approvals. And only when they get FDA approvals, then, they, then they're going to start making a lot of money, right? Now, at this stage, is when they get FDA approvals and they start making a lot of money, it's going to be, they're probably going to return like almost 20, 30, 50x. But if they don't, and somehow, you know, they struggle, they're probably going to go to zero. Mm. And we just don't know how long that's going we to take. We just don't know how long, mm. right? I like the way they're doing. They've shown a lot of progress and a lot of, of development. But does it mean it's going to get that? It's not exactly 100% for sure, right? So I can have conviction, but I don't have a high conviction that they can get, get the 50x, correct? But yet, I want to own now. But yet, it has a higher risk of going down to zero. So do I want to have a high location in this kind of, you know, very, I would say, moonshot bets, right? I'll tend to par down my allocation. Correct. So I think it's also about the risk-reward in terms of thinking around the specific company and in terms of, of allocation from the perspective. Now, if I have a company that I know, for example, like a Visa or MasterCard, right? Earning, they grow revenues about you know, 15 to 20% per year and they grow tend to grow about earnings even faster because they have, they have a lot of skill and operating leverage mm-hmm. in the business. So they tend to be growing, say, around you know, between 20 to 25% KGA for a long time. Right. Commodity annual growth rate, Com- right? Exactly. Yeah. These, are, these are businesses that keep keep growing, right? Day in, day out, you know, you're, you're spending on any money on your credit card, on your debit cards. These two guys basically get the majority of all the entire market share, right? So be good or bad, you still have to spend money, it goes to them, right? These are the kind of companies where, you know, I have far more, I have far more confidence that they're probably going to return a very narrow set of returns and I have far, far more higher conviction. And and for, for me to form, for this to form a very solid base on the companies, I probably allocate a lot more. So that's, I think these two kind of very vast extremes kind of help me to think about really conviction. And there's some other ones that are really growing a lot faster and you probably want them to swing a little bit more in terms of your portfolio as well. Then you can allocate a higher percentage. But again, that's, try, that's how I kind of try to you know, think about it. Okay. You mentioned like your winners run. So are there opportunities you're looking at right now? Uh, we're recording this in November 2021. Mm. Or are you just letting your winners run and just waiting for the you know, right opportunity to show up? I think in investing a lot of the money is not made in, in buying and, and selling or, or what we call trading, right? Because in trading, if you miss the best days, the, the studies have shown, if you miss the best days, for example, uh, this is the couple of best days, you are strictly reduced on average, for example, in S&P, it tends to be around 6 to 8%. You greatly reduce that to almost 2, 3, 4%. So trading, just because you're missing the best days and you can never almost perfectly time the lows and the highs, I have not seen anyone at least do that very consistently over a very long long term, right? Because of that, you don't want to be buying something. You just want to be buying and holding and letting them run. And that's why really the concept of, of letting your winners run high really matter a lot. I think in terms of trends, I'm looking at tailwinds and I'm looking at tailwinds that last years, if not decades, right? To give an example, we have right now, we are in the start of a tailwind, which is the shift from internal combustion engine or what we have in our cars that are basically based on your, your standard engines. And we have what we call battery, uh, you know, B, or battery, battery electric vehicles, or we call BEVs. Here we go, Tesla fans. <laughs> <laughs> I see it coming. <laughs> We're yes. going to talk about Tesla. Yes. All right, tell Correct. us more. I think it's important from that aspect because right now, you think Tesla has been around for, you know, for, for, for like almost a decade or more than that, right? We're just at this sweet spot right now where we're seeing that adoption. And the way to think about it is like this. Globally, a lot of the countries, because we have signed the climate pact, we need to basically improve and help global prevent global warming. And in, in terms of, of vehicles, they actually contribute a lot of CO2 emissions. So there's one huge aspect that we need to get out to, to make the, our entire transportation feed, uh, you know, to electrify them, or what we call the, you know, the, the team of electrification. How it looks like this is that it's, going to be a, it's probably going to look like an S-curve. And the S-curve is going to look like this, right? Where we're right now, from internal, inter, uh, from electric, here is basically where we have electric vehicles. And here is inter, internal combustion engines. 
And they're probably going to do that and going to hit the sweet spot. Now, the way to think about it, our current stock of all our cars is probably about 100 million globally. On average, depending on the economy, good or bad, it takes you about 6 to 8 million cars per year to replace. So if you think about it, on average, the replacement car cycle right now and, and, and EV penetration is still about 1 to each 3%, mm. right? The entire replacement of the fleet itself is going to be 20 to 40 years. Mm. Before we go further, let's talk about the S-curve adoption. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that we know what it means. So I think S-curve adoption is, is crucial because in any technological adoption, it will take time. And so the initial stages, it will take time because people are trying to get used to it, trying to understand it. Okay, what, why is it trying? I think the best time is right now when you see infrastructure, for example, right now in, in electric vehicles, more infrastructure being have, more charging stations, more ease, more, more people getting used to it, more marketing, more knowledge. That starts to accelerate. You start seeing the network effects, right? If everybody starts using electric vehicles and there's no more petrol kiosk stations, for example, that further accelerates that shift. I think so. I think the S curve is extremely important. And typically, you always reach kind of a maturity or I would say a massive adoption point where you hit that point and it starts to stagnate. Mm. So I like to think about you know in any tech technology trends, um, you know that, that S curve. And of course, with technology, we have seen the S curve adoption swung much more quickly. It used to be you know when we move from horses to cars. In the past, that, that whole thing used to take so long, so many years, so decades even, right? And now we are seeing the internet. We have all the roads and the, the systems for e- roads. Ex- exactly, right? The roads were, the roads, the roads so decades before, mm. you know, before they started implementing. You look at the internet, it took us less than 10, 20 years mm. and we and, and it massively changed our life. Okay. So I think that's the way I think about S-curve. So the S-curve is, uh, is slow at the start. That's why it's, it's curving and then it, it picks up, it accelerates and then it reaches mass adoption and therefore it curves back down again. So that's why it's shaped like an S. Yes, right? correct. And you're looking at the S-curve adoption for EVs. Correct, okay. exactly. So I think, the, so the, when you look at that, right, so I think it's because it's such a long way. Don't think about Tesla or investing in, in any, you know, electric vehicles player as a very short one-year player or, or do it for months, right? It's that pave. And I suspect, you know, 10 years down, 20 years down in Singapore, the majority of our cars is really going to be electric and it's already set in place. Governments are all set in it. You know, infrastructure is going to be. So I think that's what's one way to really be thinking around it. Now, you brought, you brought a very interesting thing about, about Tesla, right? Tesla is, is, is interesting because it was the one of the first mover and now obviously it's the top dog, right? You look at US, majority of all electric vehicles is a majority share, I think close to about 70, 80 um, you know, percent of that, right? And, and China is quickly moved because when you have built one factory in the US, and you have taken all that knowledge, you know what exactly to build it, you build it much more faster. And they managed to roll out an entire factory in China in less than under two years and you get it to production. That's extremely unheard of. I think with Tesla, the main important thing, it's really the fleet itself. An EV play, just building the car and getting it on electric is not sufficient. You really need to make it full self-driving. And Tesla is trying to get towards there. Now, the Tesla cars itself, they're already recording. Firstly, Tesla has more cars that on the road than any other electric car manufacturer, right? And with and Elon Musk basically shared in his interview with, with K2 Wood in, in one of the ARC interviews, Tesla, in terms of recorded miles, is more than 100 times combined, all of its competitors combined. It's a lot of data there. It's a lot of data, right? And you put through the neural network that goes through it. It has this immense uh, mode that, that it has. I think that's extremely crucial that it has. And that's why they're, they're being able to go out. Like if you can see with autopilot, for example, in the US, literally it can be on the expressway and, and the cars are moving and, and able to change lanes on, on its own. Mm, so I, I think Tesla is interesting because mm. this is where investing guidelines are not cast in stone because I, I'm sure you didn't invest in Tesla recently. I mean, you, you might have looked at it a long time ago. And there was a period of time where Tesla is not hitting its targets, not making a profit. Because if you were to look at your previous criteria, you know, increasing profit margins and all that, it's not meeting all these criteria. In fact, if you use Facebook slash Meta's PE ratio of 25, right? There was a period of time Tesla's PE is more than 1,000, you know? And, and right now, right now as of this moment, it's still more than 300, which is really high. And mm. some people might be thinking, okay, like, is, is it too late? Am I too mm, late? Mm. And, and therefore, it, would you agree that it kind of doesn't fit your criteria that you lay out earlier? Actually, I think conversely, it does fit a lot of the criteria, right? So if you think about it right now, how many cars does Tesla actually make, right? Uh, I think, I, I can't I can remember off, off the head of my numbers. So let's say, for example, it's a million. We sell 100 million cars a year globally, right? If I think Tesla can get 15% market share over 20 years, that's 15 million cars. That's, mm. If you think about it, that's 15x current revenues, right? Tesla is serving in a market that's north of $1 trillion annually. 
because the car market is huge. No one thinks about no one thinks about that, that right? The attempt is massive, right? It's not just cars, it's trucks, it's SUVs, it's different 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 car segments, right? I think that's that's a very very different way to be thinking around it, and they're going to trucks mm. and, and pickups and stuff, right? So it's this total addressable market. It's the total addressable yeah. market, right? I think we really go into it, and Tesla is is very. You cannot think about Tesla from the aspect of a traditional car manufacturer because you're not just making a body part, making, letting it run, having the marketing about it, making it look good. It's really not that. They've been investing in their full self-driving for a long time. And when that full self-driving, they spend so much money investing in it, finally rolls out in, you know, in hopefully not in, in the very distant near future and hopefully in the next couple of years, everybody is paying. When everybody is paying that subscription fee, that amount of money they're going to pay it's going to flow right through to the balance sheet as, as cash flows and as massive amount of profits. And that's where, that's where Tesla will basically experience you know, the, 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 the margins that is unlike any, any auto manufacturer that they have. And you add on robo-taxis, right? If I own a Tesla, this is, this is how the dream looks like, right? I get a Tesla, assuming you're still, go, you're still going back to work, right? The Tesla basically fetches me to work on, on full self-driving mode. I can clear my emails in between. Comes back home, picks up the wife, kids, send them, sends them back to school. Acts as a robo taxi throughout the day. Tesla gets a one third cut of that of the, of that revenue, pure revenue, mm. right? You're just renting out your Tesla as, as a robo taxi. Needs to charge, go, goes and charge. End of the day, picks you back up, picks the wife back up, charges back in your home. And if your home, for example, has solar, you know, it's it's right. free. And yeah. during the trip, you can play games on the App Store. <laughs> exactly. At one ninety nine or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're just imagining a future. Imagining. Right. I think that future, and you may have robo taxis added in. Again, you know, it's it's something that they are really trying to build, right? Build it, right? And once it's software based, that that amounts of profitability. So the way to think about it, Tesla is, they don't need to make, it doesn't have to be a winner wins all or wins most kind of market. It can be like an Apple, where Apple makes, for example, like makes like 25 percent of all smartphones, and probably takes close to about 90 percent of the industry profits of smartphone. That's how that's how I kind of really think about, about like how Tesla has to be. I mean, or, or can be in, 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 the, in the aspect, like the apple of cars from the aspect. So I think that's, that's one way to think about it. And, and I think you've got to think about it really, really long term uh, from the aspect, right? Like, it's like last year, when just pre-COVID, I was in LA, like probably like almost three or four cars on the road were, were Tesla, right? In San Francisco. So this, this is, I mean, the future is really here. It's just that it's really not evenly distributed yet. Mm. Or it's just unevenly distributed. So, right. I'm sure that's one of your multi-baggers right now. <laughs> Not financial or investing advice, but something to think about, you know, like, so when you consider the criteria for investing companies and when you look at it from a qualitative point of view, Correct. because you're also trying to, well, price in the future, which is a bit harder to price. We, we went through it just now. It is so much harder when you talk about future developments, right? But you got to have your bear case, your bull case, your base case. Yes. Indeed. Okay. Let's talk a bit about investment mistakes with open inverted commas. You know, any mistakes you have done? What did you do? How do you reallocate? I think in investing, there are probably a couple of mistakes, right? One is mistakes that you can control and one is mistakes that you can't control. Now, when mistakes that you can control, but then you let it happen. So this is one example that I had. I invested in Wirecard. Wirecard, as you know, is one of the companies, uh, one of the German-based, uh, I would say, fintech companies that recently, um, I would say, is undergoing a very bad, bad stage right now, probably going through, you know, or go, leaning towards bankruptcy. When I invested in, in, in Wirecard, Wirecard ticked all the boxes, growing rapidly, growing fast, uh, you know, and I could see Wirecard payments all over Singapore, right, which they allow for all the credit card payments because they acquired Citibank's um, acquiring, acquiring network. But what I choose to not realize was when the first FT Financial Times report came out and, and having that there were a lot of um, internal transactions, when I was reviewing their, their annual reports, I saw that, but I had minimized it. And I, I didn't bring it up too much. So what happens was then when the Financial Times, uh, you know, first Financial Times report came out, I, I did a whole deep dive and re-looked back at my whole investment thesis. And I realized I had actually part it down and, and not put it out. And I wasn't neutral enough. I had focused on what the numbers were. I think that was my single biggest mistake uh, in terms of that. And straight away after I see that, I reviewed it. I sold my entire position the very next day. I probably I was at a loss of about maybe 50 to 60%. But that's perfectly fine. It's probably one of my largest losers but I think most importantly, it's the way to aspect. I think the way to think about it, right, from that, it was actually to, to not minimize the mistakes. If something is not good nowadays in, in my thesis, I'll put, a, I'll put a red cross or a red flag 
to just be very neutral about it, right? And just say, okay, this is what it is. Mm. I shouldn't be minimizing it. I think that's extremely important. I think that has helped me uh, in terms of, of, of evaluating new investments and really just to be putting it on a fair point. If it's good, put a green tick. If it's not good, put a red cross. And if I, eventually, you know, at the end of the day, of the entire investment thesis, review it, right? Are there more green ticks than the red ticks? And if there are some red ticks, are these red ticks you know, something that you are okay with or not okay with? And then make that final investment thesis. So I think that has actually, has actually you know, vastly improved um, my entire my, uh, my investment process. Now, the other one that you cannot control, right? I invested in a company called ITE. ITE is, mm. in a way, if you can think about it, the Netflix of China, but not really the Netflix of China, which subscription, but it was actually selling more ad-based in terms of getting ad revenues, right? Now, when I first invested, it was growing rapidly. But what happens was that after a couple of quarters, the growth started to taper off massively, right? And from, you know, at, at 50, 60%, it started going, going down to almost low single digits, 10, 5%. And for some quarters, they're actually, you know, negative, right? I was like, oh, what's, what's going on? Because that's clearly a very bad sign. Because when I'm typically, when I'm doing this, I'm typically looking at multi-quarters. And if it's happening consistently over a couple of quarters, it's something that is it's really beyond my control. So I'm trying to figure out what happened. I think the, re- the the straw really came when in any streaming or entertainment company, the content that you own is king. I think when they were trying to then also sell the content to other platforms, which means to tell me they were unable to monetize that content that they had. And I think that was, that was an extreme red flag. So I saw the deterioration of the business. Unfortunate, they couldn't grow as fast as they could. And I think when you were selling off the content, I, I saw the whole deteriorating of, of their content library coming off, not being able to expand uh, that, that was the final straw and, and I sold the entire position again the following day when, when I had made that call. So I think I always try to focus about that. So I think try to think about it in two different two different aspects. Again, this in the in the space of investing, you will always have losers. You cannot not have losers. You don't, if you don't have losers, you're playing the game too safe. You have to have losers. And the way to think about it is this, right? When you're playing the game that I play or the way the style that I do is that the gains from your winners will far exceed the losses from, from all the losers. So I give you an example, right? The gains from my biggest, single biggest winner is probably more than 100 times of all my losses from all my losers combined. Just my, just my top winner, right? If I compare all that, the losers become really insignificant, they become mediocre, and they become just a smaller part of, a, of your portfolio. And the winners just take the majority. So I think, most importantly, I think for us as investors, you want to be taking advantage of it, but let you know, let your winners win and swing your outperformance in, in your favor. Yeah, your winners should more than compensate for the losses that you have. Correct. Okay, we've gone through many concepts with examples. Thank you so much. Is there any last piece of advice that you have for our retail investors? Always be going back down to the business itself, right? I think you're always going to have a lot of noise, right? Someone's going to say something about a particular business. You have inflation, you have economic growth, you know, you have all kinds of things, right? And and that's, and then you have market drops. Go always go back to them and, and stay as business-focused investors and ask yourself, like to give an example, right? During the COVID last year, when COVID was hit, is every, I asked myself, when Netflix was down, I think what, like 20, 30%. Mm-hmm. Ask myself the question, is anyone going to unsubscribe Netflix? Well, we're going to stay at home. <laughs> yes, the answer was probably no. And if anything, Netflix is going to go up. So actually I bought more Netflix. So you ask yourself that very fundamental basic questions every time when you have a market sell-off. Is the business really not doing well? Or is it, you know, just Mr. Market decided to play a tantrum and, and have that, right? When you think about it, always be that, be, from that aspect, I think it really helps you to be so much better as an investor, you know, and just be trying to be owning businesses rather than trying to be trading tickles or trying to have price charts to try to determine whether to buy or sell or anything. I think that's really fundamental. I think that changes... That was a fundamental change in, 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 my, in my perspective. And I think that should be, uh, you know, in terms of any retail investor. And of course, by investor, by, 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 by definition, should be for the long term. Thank you, Eugene. No, thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening all the way here. Stay after this outro because usually we have some bonus content right at the end. It's like the end credit scene of a movie. But before that, I hope you've learned something useful today. If you like more of this content, join our Telegram group, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter. For all this and more, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. My name is Andrew. Stay tuned for the next episode of Chill with the Financial Coconuts. We have three questions that we ask every guest. First question is, what is one of your core life principles? I think one of my core life principles is 
to be the best version of yourself. Continuously keep improving on it. That's ex extremely crucial. For me, the second one that I have is in anything, you need to have grit and determination and the tenacity to, to, to just grind it through. Because a lot of the stuff, typically when you do it, at the beginning, you will not see the returns. But most, most of the time, you see exponential, you probably see an S-curve, right? And hopefully, you see a longer exponential curve rather than, a, than an S-curve. I think that is something that you really need to train in terms of patience. The final one, I think, is as everything in life. Enjoy it. Life, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Enjoy the journey. Savor it. Um, you know, invest. So, so spend a lot of time investing. Look at companies. But also, you know, spend, spend it outside with your loved ones. And I think that that's, that's extremely important. So I think in life, that, that's what really truly matters. Yep, that's the balance. Exactly, the balance. Well, finance podcast, so what is one piece of financial advice that you think should be shared more often? Anything that comes to your mind? In investing, really, it's about finding excellence, buying excellence, holding excellence, adding to excellence, and selling mediocrity. I think do that in investing, do that in your life. You know, I think that truly is one of the biggest takeaways that, that can help you help the world. And through, hopefully, we as a collective can be doing that and investing more meaningful in companies uh, and, and driving the world forward. Okay. What is one area of your life that you're giving additional focus right now? For me, um, really two different aspects. One is teaching. So I've not taught investing before. Obviously, I wrote a book. But what I'm trying to do right now is to create a course to teach people to how to invest. So I'm doing actually with Maven. Uh, it's one of the startups. So it's going to be cohort-based, community-based learning. Uh, we will do it over, over, over a specific course. I'm targeting that for January next year. The other one is, I also just started my investing journey on the startup in, in private. So I think that's something that I've actually signed up to with OnDeck for their OnDeck Angels ODA5 um, batch to really try to expand my, my deal flow, to meet more founders, to meet more investors and try to expand uh, that, that aspect. So something that I'm hoping to build over the, you know, the next couple of years and hopefully do get to show some track record and some returns in the next three to five years and that you know could perhaps be even content for my second book you know, of how to invest in, in startups. Okay. Would you like to share your Twitter handle or any other social media profiles? Because I know you do post quite a bit on the companies that you're looking at. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Eugene, E-U-G-E-N-E -E, with my surname Ng, N-G, underscore V-C-A-P or short form for, for Vision Capital. All right. Thank you, Eugene. Thank you so much.